Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. So before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we discuss everything from molecular to macroscopic systems of the body and the universe, the three axes of the novel psychiatric interventional program, dimensional versus categorical models of behavior, personality versus pathology, social roles, experimental design, the placebo and nocebo effects. The list goes on and on and on. So let's get into it. Ilya Demchenko is a clinical research coordinator at the Center for Depression and Suicide Studies at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's been collaborating with lead clinicians and researchers to design and launch a novel interventional psychiatry program. They're envisioning a clinical and research center that will use neurotechnologies to provide therapeutic solutions for treatment-resistant depression. Ilya completed his master's in neuroscience at McGill University this summer where he was based at the Douglas Mental Health Hospital in Verdun. As a graduate student, Ilya used electroencephalography, or EEG, and a special social role-playing experimental task to investigate the complex interactions between schizotypal traits and the placebo-nocebo effect. Ilya's work has been focusing on biomarkers of personality traits and psychiatric disorders. He advocates both for knowledge translation and interdisciplinary collaboration, the two building blocks that make mental health care innovative, inclusive, and interconnected. Ilya loves spending his free time playing the piano, skating, creating music and video edits, and debating on history. So today, we'll be discussing his work, past and present, and its impact on the future of science. Ilya, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's very nice being here. No problem. Always love having people from Canada, but not from my hometown of Montreal. So this introduction is absolutely jam-packed. I hope we have time to get through all of it. There are a bunch of terms here that I want to make sure, first and foremost, that we actually define so that the listeners can get a solid idea of what it is exactly that you do. First and foremost, I just want to get a bit of an idea of your academic path. So how did you actually get started doing a master's at McGill? So by training, I'm actually a biologist. Mm -hmm. So when I started my career, I started studying just basic life sciences. And then maybe in like my third year, I started realizing that psychology, psychiatry, this is something that interests me. But also I have like a very good biological foundation. Mm -hmm. So I did my bachelor's in neuroscience where I had a chance to study a lot of anatomy, a lot of biochemistry, a lot of neurochemistry. But then I started working Uh, at the RTMS clinic here in Toronto, where I got a chance to get uh, a sense of what the clinical environment looks like and what clinical research is all about. So this really laid the foundation toward my future path that I decided to integrate the field. So I decided to study the biology of mental disorders and then getting into the neuroscience of mental disorders. 
how would you kind of explain clinical research in a single sentence? Like, how, do, how would you define that for yourself? So it will be quite difficult to describe what clinical research is just in one sentence. So what I'll do instead, I'll provide a little overview of where clinical research stands in the general context of how we do science these days. So if you look at science broadly, on one end, you would have what's called basic research. Basic research, it's all about making discoveries. It's about working with the fundamental building blocks of life, so like genes, cells, and tissue, and then identifying biological or chemical processes that may or may not have a certain therapeutic potential. However, uh, once that is done, uh, you can simply take this finding and start testing it in humans. What you need to do is uh, you need to test it on animal models or any other intermediate models first. So this is what translational research is all about. It's the middle step between basic science and clinical science. Translational research it involves uh, taking that basic finding and confirming it in a living organism. You would explore interactions with other biological or chemical processes of a living organism. You would identify safety parameters. You would explore what the real therapeutic potential is of that discovery that you made. You will also look at the feasibility. So there are a lot of different things you can do in animal models, and you have to do that before you start, uh, before you can be actually sure that this is something that's kind of like worth being tested in humans. So only after this rigorous step is over, you would test this finding in humans as a potential new form of treatment or uh, a diagnostic technique or even like a medical device. So clinical research, it's complex uh, because people respond to treatments differently. There are a lot of factors that come into play. You're not simply looking at biology anymore, but at the interaction between medicine and different psychological and socioeconomic factors. Uh, a very big part of clinical research is study design, ethics, uh, regulatory compliance. So scientists really need to learn and make sure that they adhere to certain standards. And humans, um, humans are biopsychosocial entities. And clinical research is that part of science where this principle becomes vital to take into account. Interesting. And so you've been drawn more to dealing with humans than to dealing with tissue samples and animals. Why is that? As I was studying, I was initially more prone towards studying physiology and anatomy. So I was like originally more interested in learning more about human biology mm -hmm. rather than uh, animal biology or like cellular biology. I'm, I'm just like traditionally better at like macro level things. Okay. Things. For me, like molecular level, it was always, I've always struggled with like chemistry and like molecular biology classes, physics. I like picturing things on a macro level. Yeah. Being able sure. to actually physically, for example, if you're studying anatomy, I would like to physically like visualize what's happening. I'm actually the exact same way. I remember really loving studying things like the skeletal system. Yeah. As opposed to studying, you know, like various hormones interacting at the surface level of, of a cell membrane. That was just too Exactly, because all that stuff is like that you'll learn about in cell biology and chemistry. It's very abstract. Like, like you can see it using like special technology, but you cannot. Yeah. It involves a lot of abstract thinking, a lot of imagination, kind of like understanding those concepts. While when you're studying something on a macro level, you can actually feel it and touch it and and also, like, just my way of memorizing things and learning about different information. I'm more of, like, a structural person. Mm -hmm. If I draw things out, I would be able to, like, to remember them better. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess this is just like the representation I hold about uh, how to like structure my information. And this just like drives my interest both in uh, learning and in teaching and in research. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Again, I, I'm, I'm totally on that same level. I, I find people absolutely fascinating and working with them has always been my go-to. You mentioned that you're designing and preparing to launch what you call a novel interventional psychiatry program, which is going to take the form of some kind of institution. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, if you can? Absolutely, yeah. So interventional psychiatry program, the idea of that is that it's going to be like research and clinical center. And interventional psychiatry, it's really a new branch within psychiatry that tries to use those neurotechnological approaches toward treatment. So the model of interventional psychiatry program, it comes from the U.S., so there are already a bunch of programs like that in the United States. And uh, here in Canada, we're trying to launch one as well. So this program will be specifically for treatment-resistant depression. Treatment-resistant depression typically refers to inadequate response to at least one antidepressant trial of adequate doses and duration. It's a relatively common occurrence in clinical practice with up to 50 to 60% of the patients not achieving adequate response following antidepressant treatment. And we want to create the clinical framework where people will be offered different treatments. And there typically will be a hierarchy or like a certain sequential approach to those treatments. So people will try treatment A first and only if it doesn't work, they will proceed to treatment B. And then if treatment B doesn't work, they'll proceed to treatment C. So, and just to specify why it's called interventional and why it involves neurotechnology, um, we perform interventions. So typically these interventions are procedural and are more invasive than general medical or psychological care. So this program, which really aims to integrate uh, this core psychiatric approach with biological treatments uh, seen within the medical model. Um, the examples would be brain stimulation, uh, ketamine injections, electroconvulsive therapy. Now, you said that you're working on kind of a new framework. How does your new framework in terms of this hierarchy compare to the framework that already exists? Yeah, so our new framework is um, that there are three axes within our program. Yeah. So there will be three major axes. There will be the brain stimulation axis, where we will combine treatment for neurostimulation, also experimental treatments. So this is like the first axis. And here we want to primarily offer clinical treatment, but a lot of these treatments are still very unknown and unexplained. So we want to conduct clinical research and do clinical trials to see uh, whether they are effective. So essentially like a combination of both treatment center and uh, research center. Mm -hmm. Great. Then the second axis is the anesthesia axis. So again, it's also another way of offering treatment for resistant depression. So anesthesia axis will also have different treatments that they're going to offer. The main one and the hot one is intravenous ketamine treatment. Mm -hmm. And then there will be nitrous mm -hmm. oxide treatment for depression and see whether we will be able to like groundbreak the field with those new treatments. Mm -hmm. So before you tell me about the third axis, I just want to quickly touch on these uh, ketamine injections. You said this is kind of a hot topic right now. Is this a new kind of treatment or has there been a resurgence in this kind of treatment or some kind of adaptation that's made it desirable now? So ketamine, it's, um, it's an old drug. It's also like an old anesthetic drug that has been used before, but it has never been used for depression. So this is like a new emergent treatment for depression that was like recently introduced into clinical practice. 
people are still doing a lot of research on that to see how it actually works. So uh, now the science kind of like has reached that point where we're able to offer those treatments for like particularly severe cases. Mm -hmm. What's very interesting about it is that the effect is rapid. So we really see the effect instantly, almost. It's very fast acting. If it's fast acting, is it long lasting like Tylenol? Or even better than Tylenol? Like, does this last for weeks? I would imagine that patients would have to get several shots. Like, it's a, it's a cycle, so it's not just like one injection will cure your depression. Mm -hmm. It's more like you have to go through like a treatment cycle. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not uh, like a panacea for all your problems, because again, those types of treatments, they are very individualistic. So that means that there are responders and there are non-responders, meaning that not everyone will respond to those treatments, unfortunately. Well, this is the whole idea behind treatment-resistant depression. I thought ketamine was supposed to be this kind of special treatment that helps people with treatment-resistant depression. So you're saying there are people who have treatment-resistant depression and then they also have ketamine-resistant depression as well. Exactly. People who are already treatment-resistant, who have tried antidepressants, who have tried uh, psychotherapy, they are looking for some other alternative treatment options. But again, that doesn't guarantee that this will cure their depression again, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And this, the next big framework behind our program is that we're trying to create this hierarchy of treatments. So we're trying to see which treatments a patient would try first. If it works for them, then we will stop right here. But if it doesn't work, then they will progress, climb up the ladder, and then try a different treatment, a second treatment. Mm -hmm. And then if they fail that treatment, they'll try another treatment. Got it. It's going to be like a progressive framework that patients will have a chance to try different treatments. Sure. So th now the idea is that patient will try the repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or RTMS. Repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or RTMS is a procedure in which cerebral electrical activity is influenced by a pulsed magnetic field. The magnetic field is generated by passing brief current pulses through a figure eight coil. Hmm. So the RTMS will be the first step in the sequence. If they fail that, uh, they'll proceed to the anesthesia treatments. Uh, so they will try the ketamine treatment. If they fail ketamine, uh, they'll try the ECT, or the electroconvulsive therapy. So ECT would be really the last resort because um, this treatment typically requires anesthesia, uh, general anesthesia. It's literally a seizure induction. And there are cases of uh, transient memory loss, and some patients, they actually need to be admitted to the hospital to perform this, this procedure. Dear listener, according to the data that my podcast has generated over the last six months, about 65 to 70% of you are between the age of 18 and 27, which means a lot of you are probably students. So I just want to wish you good luck on your exams. Remember, it's not just about studying hard. It's also about studying smart. That's something that I learned listening to the Weekly Call podcast. Feel free to check them out. Just a shameless plug for some great guys down at the Weekly Call. So right after you're done this episode, make sure you show those exams who's boss. Okay, cool. Okay, so I definitely get the hierarchy. Let's pop back to talk about that third axis. So third axis is really more about digitization and like digital interventions. So the third axis, it's more about data storage, data monitoring, 
clinical monitoring through digital intervention. It's, and it's very, very hot topic now because of the pandemic. And the whole idea behind the third axis is to develop apps, to develop websites where patients uh, would be able to like enter their data, just like sitting from home. And the clinicians would be able to like monitor that. Potentially offer some psychotherapy options through digital means as well. Are there any frameworks that are like that would fit into this digital intervention program type that currently exist, and you're and you're looking to build on it, or is this really something absolutely brand new? I I wouldn't say it's brand new. I think this exists definitely somewhere, like in some places. But again, it's just like now uh, different clinics, different hospitals are trying to like incorporate the digital aspect into their own programming. Mm-hmm. Okay. We also want to use those digital methods for research as well. So we want to, like, we want to evaluate also whether it feels comfortable for them, for patients, whether it's like a convenient way for them, how we can improve that. Because uh, again, it's relatively new, so it's not like a gold standard, and there's always room for improvement. So this is like what we're striving to do. Awesome. Well, so listeners, you heard it here first. This is the novel interventional psychiatry program coming to you straight from Toronto. When can we expect this kind of program to be operational? So unfortunately, because of COVID, like we had to postpone a lot of things. Now we're still in the design and development mode, I would say. We're also designing a couple of clinical trials. We're hoping to launch them maybe in March, April 2021. Right. But this is, this is something coming very soon. This is not a 5-10 year project. This is, this is really no, coming No, no, no. This is like we already have everything. You know, we're already launching clinical trials, submitting the ethics applications especially concerning like the digital aspects. We already launched the trials there. It's more about like the physical space where patients will be able to come in and see providers. This will take some additional time just because of the public health concerns. Perfect. I want to talk a bit more about the research you were doing during your master's degree, just to kind of bring us back to the topic of human beings and to humanize this a little bit. In the intro, you did mention that you used a mix of EEG or electroencephalography, which is a kind of brain imaging technique. And you also use social role playing, which to me doesn't sound anything like that. So I'm curious to know how you brought those two different kinds of experimental methods together and what each of them actually provided for you. Okay. So my whole master's project was like an integration of psychiatry and uh, cognitive science. Cool. The idea behind that, it again comes back to that idea of like biomarkers and uh, personality traits and uh, the um, dimensional model of mental disorders. So basically, um, to break it down, we were looking at healthy people, but we believe that there's like an axis of uh, certain personality traits. So for example, I was studying schizotypy. So let's say we want to look at schizotypal traits, but we are separating dimensional model versus categorical model. So in brief, categorical model just says that like, oh, you either have a disorder or you don't. While dimensional model says that every single person is placed somewhere on that continuum of traits. Mm-hmm, like a spectrum. Some of these traits are more severe. Some of these traits are less severe. So in our experiment, it was a proof of concept study. So we wanted to look at the healthy population specifically. We wanted to look at these, this schizotypal continuum in the healthy population. So that's one part. Then the second part is that there is this finding that, well, people have drives, we all have drives to play social roles because social roles are everywhere around us. As we grow up, uh, we start imitating characters. We always learn about new social roles. It's, it, we observe our parents, we observe uh, people around us and their behaviors. This is how we essentially learn to navigate the environment. And those social roles, we, we've kind of like separated them into four categories. And these categories, they're really 
build upon two continuums. So the first continuum is like extraordinary versus ordinary. So this is essentially how realistic a role is. So if the role is uh, not realistic, if it comes from fiction, like Harry Potter, for example, that would be like an extraordinary role. If it's realistic, like a driver, that would be ordinary role. Got it. And the second continuum, it's favorable versus unfavorable. So this is like how good or bad a role is, how in general in the society. So for example, something like mother. So this would be like a favorable role because it's technically generally without taking any like cultural differences, assume that it's a good role. While uh, unfavorable or like a bad role would be something like a murderer. Like a serial killer. Yeah, I, I say that's a pretty stark contrast between mother and murderer. They could be the same yeah. person, but <laughs> hopefully not in this case. Exactly, yeah. But it's, but this is just like an abstract idea. So it's like what I call a social role. And then we just divide the social role into four categories. So based on these two combinations. Mm-hmm. So we would have extraordinary favorable, extraordinary unfavorable, uh, ordinary favorable, and ordinary unfavorable. Got it. Yeah, so essentially four types of social roles. And then people are, would be asked, would you consider ever playing the social role in your life? And then if people have a tendency to respond yes to those extraordinary, unrealistic roles, we found that there is an association with their schizotypal trait. Wow. So, yeah, there is a correlation that if you're seriously considering that you at some point would be like a hair potter or like a Superman or play some kind of role like that, then uh, your schizotypal traits would be like delusional traits. They will be higher. Yeah, so how do we differentiate here between like uh, schizotypal traits and also maybe just kind of being more imaginative? I would imagine actually if you asked younger children, they would probably show higher levels of schizotypal traits. Exactly, but it's just a personality trait. So it doesn't mean that it's a pathology trait. Okay. That's how the dimensional model views all those traits essentially. It's not necessarily pathological. It's more like, yeah, this is just a tendency. Everyone has those tendencies, but it doesn't mean everyone is sick and everyone has like a mental disorder. Right. So in terms of actually categorizing a pathology, when you ask this question, what were the options? Like, let's say you asked me, how likely would I be to play a Harry Potter role? Like, I'm curious to know what the, what the specific wording of the question is. Was it a yes, no, maybe? That's a yes, no question. So essentially, you are, you're sitting in front of a computer, you see those roles, and you're asked to give a yes or no answer. So you're just asked... Uh, would you ever consider playing the social role in your life? Perfect. And you have to say yes, or you have to say no. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So it's a, it's a binary thing then. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, it's essentially we call it acceptance or rejection. Right. And then I guess you can just kind of see how many of each type of social role people selected as, as yes versus no. It's a complex task, yeah. But essentially, you can look at multiple things here. So... Going back to like the design, because I still have to like explain how we actually did the experiment. Please. That is a computer task where healthy individuals come in uh, and they press the yes or no button. So the variables we can look at here are what the actual responses are. So whether you accept a social role or reject a social role. Again, you look. You want to look at all these four categories to see like whether they are really different. Then you can look at the reaction time. So you can look at how fast they were pressing the button how fast they were accepting the social role on the screen, and how fast they were rejecting it. This is interesting because there is that idea that the faster you press the button, the more willing you are to enact that social role. And the slower you are, the more reluctant you are to engage with it. It gives you an insight into this sort of intrinsic alignment of our personal drives towards certain patterns of behavior with the specific way of operationalizing decision-making. 
As soon as you see a word on the screen, it will instantly activate a corresponding schema within your brain. It would trigger a downstream activation of the semantic network, which would be comprised of closely or distantly related concepts and pieces of information. So when a person processes all of that, it would lead ultimately to a certain decision. So a person will make a decision on whether they want to engage with that social role or whether they don't want to. So the whole idea behind my master's work um, was to dive into this process of how semantic processing of social roles happens uh, and how it leads to decision-making. For more on decision-making, check out episode two with Sean Devine. So what could be a potential explanation behind that? How their schizotypal profile mediates or moderates that pattern of downstream activations? With that, we looked at the EEG recording. We looked at what's called event-related potentials, or ERPs, which technically reflect a summation of neuronal electrical activity. We wanted to see how specific ERPs of semantic memory, like N400, could theoretically explain social role processing, and how this process would be different between those with high schizotypy and respectively those with higher tendency to play extraordinary social roles relative to those with low tendency uh, to play extraordinary social roles and low schizotypy. So what kind of information does the EEG give us? Does it just tell us whether the brain is being more or less active, or does it give information about certain regions being active? It does both. So first of all, EEG is an inferential technique. So you cannot assume that because you have an activity uh, on the EEG at a certain location, that means that there is an area underlying that gets active. Because EEG is a surface level recording. If you get activity there, it doesn't mean that that activity gets generated within that area. It can generate anywhere and just like spread to that location after the fact. Mm -hmm. EEG is an electrophysiological recording. So it records like a, like a summation of neuronal activity. So when you average uh, like the EEG recording for like specific words, you will get peaks very pronounced. So in literature, those peaks I believe to be corresponding to certain underlying cognitive processes, like processing semantically social roles. Mm -hmm. So these are very automatic processes that happen within milliseconds. Also, these peaks are responsible for conscious extraction of information. But it just depends on like what peaks you want to look at. Because this is like a whole field, and uh, there are different peaks you can explore. There are different sensory paradigms you can explore. You can explore auditory, visual. It's like a whole domain there. Right. We don't need to go crazy in, into detail with the EEG stuff. We can really keep it surface level, pun intended. But what I, what I wanted to say is like those peaks are the biomarkers that I was studying. So okay. these peaks are potentially believed to be biomarkers of certain mental disorders, particularly schizophrenia and autism spectrum disorders. Okay. Because this tells us that if the peak is not normal, how it looks like, it means there's something wrong happening at the cellular level and the underlying cognition. Mm-hmm. That's where this idea of cognitive symptoms comes from. And like the cognitive science of psychiatry just in general tries to investigate those potential mechanisms. And now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet. So if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science, whether you are a university or research institute or any organization looking to support the show, please reach out to us over email at abstractcast at gmail.com. 
If you don't have the means to support us financially and you're just a dedicated listener, drop us a line at the same email. We'd be so happy to hear from you and get some of your feedback on the podcast so far. That's all from me for now. Let's head back to the episode. I'm imagining that maybe somebody who has, I don't know, sociopathy, maybe when they see the word murderer, they have a a, a diminished emotional response to that. Whereas someone else might actually kind of get this, this arousal response just from seeing the word murderer. So when you have people and you're measuring their schizotypal traits, what kinds of differences are you expecting to see in these peaks and what kind of stimuli would trigger those differences more or less? I'll first answer the question about the stimuli. So stimuli, again, like as as I have mentioned before, it can be different uh, sensory modalities. Different sensory modalities usually correspond to different peaks that you want to look at. And like there will be like a different pattern of peaks depending on what the task looks like. Mm -hmm. If it's just simple like visual task where people look at words and they have to perform some task on those words, for example, press yes or no. So it's essentially some task that involves cognitive processes. So they have to think about the word, they have to process it, thinking about its meaning. Let's say this will be one category of peaks of those ERPs. If if you have a visual task where you're viewing, looking at images, this is going to be a whole different set of ERPs. If there is like an auditory task where you have to listen to stimuli, this is like a third category of uh, ERPs. So that's, uh, that's it. So it's literally depends on the task. And now, if you want to study psychopathology with that, you first have to be careful with how you design your task. Then, just depending on a specific task, you can predict a certain response, certain biological observation. Unfortunately, th- that's like the main problem with this, with these biomarkers, is like those peaks are very, very individualistic. So all the research we're doing on them, it's a group level research, meaning that we just take individual people, we average them, and we kind of like say, okay, there's a difference between psychopathological group and healthy group. Got it. Okay. That means that there is no real consensus in the literature whether schizophrenia is going to have a bigger amplitude on that peak or a smaller amplitude on that peak. It will depend on your task and it will depend on your on your population. And ultimately, this will lead to different explanations. That's why in the field, there are different scientists who are proposing different theories behind what those ERPs really mean, what they really indicate. That's why we have to keep trying, keep designing more experiments, keep altering our experimental conditions to see how those peaks change to rule out certain explanations. Perfect. Okay, great. So we've co- I think we've actually covered everything. We spoke about this, this new interventional psychiatry program. We discussed the kinds of methods you use in your master's, that is social role-playing and EEG. We spoke about how they're implicated in identifying schizotypal traits. I guess the last thing just to quickly touch on, you also mentioned that you're looking at placebo and nocebo effects. These are terms that I've heard of, but just for the listeners, can you quickly define that for us and how it relates to your research? Yeah, so this is really the third component of my master's project. So first, I'm just going to give a definition. So placebo effect and nocebo effect. So placebo is essentially an anticipation that something good will happen, being able to observe that response to placebo because of the expectation that the tablet or the pill that you will be taking will produce some positive response. Mm-hmm. Nocebo, it's the opposite. So it's anticipation that there will be a negative response and then observing that negative response. Really? Uh, when do you like measurements? Yeah. Nocebo sounds like you'd be expecting actually nothing to happen. 
not a negative thing. Nocebo, it's like the opposite of placebo. So it's like a negative expectation of the usually of the patient that the treatment will have like a negative effect on them. Huh. Okay, cool. I, I'll give an example. Like if you if you take a pill and you're thinking that it will make you nauseous. Yeah. And then when you start feeling nauseous after that pill, even if it was just like a sugar pill. So this will be like a nocebo effect. Got it. Cool. Okay. So ultimately, it's all about expectations. So it's all about those expectancies that you hold and those beliefs that you hold about treatment intervention. My whole thesis was really about that. So it was the placebo effect and how it interacts with schizotypy in social role-playing context. Yeah, so let's bring it together. Like, how are these things all, all coming together? What was the end result of all of your research? Essentially, the end result was that people with high schizotypy, when we tell them that they will receive an antipsychotic medication, but we give them like a placebo pill, they experience a nocebo effect. While people with uh, low schizotypy, they experience a, like a positive placebo effect in the social role-playing paradigm. So, so essentially, yeah. it, it kind of like it augments their response to social roles in, 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 in reaction times and also the number of social roles they accept. While in uh, people with high schizotypy, taking the placebo pill and being told that you will take an antipsychotic, it really makes them more schizotypal in a way. So what's the ultimate implication here? Well, this is, again, proof of concept study. So essentially the goal of this whole research is to do the same paradigm in patients. So we want to see whether the social role task can be used in patients, in schizophrenia patients, to predict their treatment response. Before you do that, before you actually work with patients, you have to identify this concept in healthy populations. So it was like a preliminary step doing this study in the healthy population so that we can explain what's happening there mechanistically and then later performing the same experiments in the psychopathological population. And another thing is that I my experiment was about placebos. So before you actually start looking at the actual medications because you want to see how the actual antipsychotic medication affects the social role-playing and the event-related potentials. Yeah, this is just like you're creating a baseline. Yeah, you essentially want to separate the placebo any possible non-specific effects. So you, uh, I was comparing the placebo group and no-pill group. So placebo group who were told that they were taking antipsychotic medication but they really took a sugar pill. And I was comparing those people with people who did the task but did not take any pill. If you look at the area uh, which is responsible for extracting that information about social roles, which is like the prefrontal cortex, we saw that in high schizotypal participants, the placebo actually decreased the amplitude of that uh, event-related potential. And uh, in people who are low in schizotypy, it actually increased that amplitude. Is that what you expected, by the way? We kind of were exploring some stuff at first, but then uh, I had a clear hypothesis on my mind of why that was happening. But in order to explain to you why this is happening, we really need to dive into the mechanism of the event-related potential and kind of like, I need to explain what event-related potential means. First of all, was this work published? Is there any way that we could find this, like a, a paper that goes into more detail on this for the listeners if they're curious? The study that was published before and that we kind of like built this theoretical framework on. It's by Fernandez, Cruz, and colleagues. It was published in 2016 in uh, NPG Schizophrenia. So that paper just like shows the association between schizotypal traits and uh, the tendency to play extraordinary social roles. 
the medication study has not been published yet. It's like a long-term work which has been like going on for like a long time. Mm -hmm. But I'm currently working on uh, on the publication for my thesis for this. Okay, cool. So I will put a link then to that initial paper that you just mentioned so that the listeners can go check that out and get a little bit more background information if they so choose. And that brings us to our final question before I let you go. Last question I have for you today is, and you can interpret this either relating to your academics or just totally open, non-academically. Question is, uh, there are a thousand people listening to you right now. What do you tell them? I would say um, science, it's not um, all black and white. It's not just about learning and learning certain concepts and memorizing them and then uh, volunteering in different places and just getting that experience down on your CV. It's a lifestyle. So if you want to be a scientist or if you want to be a clinician scientist, you cannot just think about working from nine to five and then closing your laptop or closing the door of your office and going home. It's always with you. So uh, you really have to adapt your lifestyle to being a scientist and incorporate that thinking into basically every single day. Be proactive, be approachable and innovative, be collaborative and take every single opportunity to your advantage. Try to use it to get as much positive outcomes of them as possible that they can use to harness your learning, your knowledge, and just become a better person every single day. Amazing. And it seems to have been working for you so far. <laughs> Not without any like downsides, for sure. And I'm pretty sure every single person experiences that at some point in their career and in their life. But it's so natural and so normal. So you just keep pushing on. Amazing. I love it. Keep pushing on. That, those are the parting words from our beloved Ilya Demchenko. Thank you so much for coming. Thank on you so much, today. Jeremy. It was a yeah. pleasure talking to you today. Same here. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.